Infirmary Media. Start. Poop culture. Yeah, yeah, poop culture. Poop, 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 poop culture. Yeah, the poop culture. Poop, poop culture. People engage in stuff for jeweling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jeweling decades. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet in sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jeweling decades. We are broadcasting from the Bio Bidet Studios where water does it better. Greetings, Retro Warriors, and welcome to another episode of Dueling Decades here on Poop Culture, the totally gnarly retro game show where we make the 80s and the 90s fight it out as we debate these two dope decades. Let's take a look at the teams and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, representing November of 1990. I'm Bo Beecraft, and playing alongside me is James Jones of that totally awesome 90s podcast, and uh, together we form Nindely Imbruglia. And representing November of 1987. That's right. I'm Rick Mancrush, and I am playing with, <laughs> that sounds terrible, with Mark James, <laughs> and uh, we're the Mama Lukes. And what is this like? What are we on a four-match win streak? I know we, no, maybe even five. Might be five months in a row, because we haven't lost since May. Nobody's going to beat the Mamelukes. Let's see how it goes. And as always, here on Dueling Decades, we need someone to hold down the law and order. So he's back, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Honorable Judge John Cross. I am John Cross. I am John Cross. I am Judge Reinhold. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) We're glad to have you back, though. Thanks, everybody. It's, It's a pleasure to be back. I'm suitably unimpressed. (laughs) (laughs) i'm ready to argue with you in a little bit yeah let's do it out (laughs) all right ladies and gentlemen the rules of our game are quite simple a coin flip will decide the team that goes first the winning team will decide the topic of each round out of the five dueling decades categories movies tv music news and hot products the first three rounds are worth one point each with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. The judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, and the team with the highest overall score after all five rounds will be the victor. Gentlemen, let's play some Dueling Decades. All right, John Cross with the uh, ceremonial coin toss. I saw he had something in his I I do. It's very, very exciting for this, my first toss-off. Uh, since my honeymoon, <laughs> that that's not true. I've been tossing off every day since my honeymoon. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in her mm. first picture, falling in love again. The VHS tape will be tonight's toin toss. Toin toss. Toin toss. Do you want to toss off on Michelle Pfeiffer's face? <laughs> or on the back of this VHS cassette? <laughs> Is it Tonight, too much we'll, to ask for both? <laughs> we'll, we'll let uh, James pick. James, call work. it. James, go ahead, call it. Not face. Face. <laughs> All right. Very nice. Attaboy. Like go. your style. Here we go. Oh, and it is face. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Controls Excellent. the board. 
You are falling in love again with Michelle Pfeiffer. All right, where do you guys want to go? I'm going to defer to James. He's the the guest of honor. Let's start off with some music. Do you you want to take the first subject? It's all you, man. All right, all right. Uh, We've got Crazy World, released in November 6th of 1990 by Scorpions. It's their 11th album. It's their only album to reach silver in the UK. Second best album in the US behind their 1984 Love at First Sting. Reached number 21 in the Billboard 200. Most notable single was Wind of Change, which talks about their the uh, end of the Cold War, talking about hope after all the com- communist-run governments are done. Uh, the single peaked at number four in the U.S., number two in the U.K., and it holds the record for best-selling single by German artists. Does anyone know the actual words to that song, though? Uh, Donnie Park. <laughs> Follow that Sasquatch <laughs> down to Donkey Punch. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny that you, you picked that. Last September, I went with a bunch of guys from the show and the, the former PCU, and we went down to that show. And when we first got there, uh, Megadeth opened, and it was empty. And then when Scorpions came on, we were like, no way that they're selling out the garden because we were at Mass Square Garden. I shit you not, that entire place, not an empty seat. And I'd say probably more than 50% of those people did not speak English. <laughs> including the people sitting around us. And it not only not crazy. an empty seat, but there wasn't a dry seat either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but for totally different reasons, man. <laughs> yeah. Totally incontinent German reasons. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. Well, the guy next to us was Russian. We have a whole story about that from the episode back September last year. We almost got into a fight with uh, Eric from the Mockers because they were sitting next to each other. Fucking crazy. Anyhow. <laughs> But what do, you, what do you got? For if you pick? don't like the scorpions, you get the fuck out of here, no? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, music from November 1990. My pick is, uh, unfortunately, five-man acoustical jam by Tesla. Not Ooh. the inventor, the band. Uh, released November 13th, actually just uh, yesterday. It's a live acoustic album that uh, is noted for... So Tesla was otherwise, up to this point, pretty... Electric heavy, uh, so they swapped it out like all good bands do when they want to jump the shark for acoustic guitars. Uh, it, it's got pretty much all the hits are there, uh, but the most notable inclusion on the album is a cover of the five-man electrical band Signs, which uh, reached number two on the Billboard mainstream rock charts and uh, is probably played more than the original by the five-man electrical band. So there you go. Sure. Five-man acoustical jam, the live record from Tesla. As a musician, you did not like this album because that's the vibe I'm getting. Uh, I've never been a huge Tesla fan. I mean, I, I've got yeah. nothing against them. I've just never really. I always dug into their stuff. Tesla as like a like a broke dick Aerosmith. <laughs> 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 like if Steven Tyler had a crooked crank, that's <laughs> you would have Tesla. <laughs> I I did like that album though. I think that's a that's a solid choice. You got signs. It's the one yeah. Tesla album I really like. It's the one I can tolerate. You know, they put one out like uh, I don't know, probably ten years ago that was actually pretty good. It was kind of a minor comeback for them. I did. I seen them live a couple of years back when they opened for uh, Def Leppard, and they were pretty solid. I liked them, but uh, I think our picks are better. Yeah, November was a dumpster fire in the 90s. <laughs> oh, oh, he's throwing in the towel already, round one. <laughs> Holy shit. All right, Mark, do you want to lead off with yours? Sure, I'll start this one. 
All right, for my pick for music, I am going to pick a soundtrack that was released November 6, 1987, and that is a soundtrack from the major motion picture Less Than Zero. Of course, that's the movie that is the Robert Downey Jr. classic, with, of course, James Spader in it as well. The whole soundtrack was put out by Def Jam. It was Most of the tracks were produced by Rick Rubin. A lot of the hit songs that were on the album were songs that were recorded just for this soundtrack that were later put out by those artists on their own albums. So the first time you got to hear A Hazy Shade of Winter by The Bangles was on this album. Bring the Noise, Public Enemy, was on this album, as well as going back to Cali from LL Cool J. So, landmark album, as far as soundtracks go, from the 1987 hit film, Less Than Zero. And a rendition of Kiss's uh, Rock and Roll All Night. Yeah, by Poison. Poison covering Kiss. Musically, it's about even. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to go with... (laughs) Hold on. You know, when we look at making our selections oftentimes we have to make some tough choices and we leave things out we only get one choice each so we're responsible for selecting something with the most pop culture clout from that era i mean shit a couple months ago i think it was back in august i had to pick the backstreet boys for that reason so this selection isn't that tough but it does fall into the category that it keeps you know, it's relevant forever, okay? So released on November 16th, 1987, we're given the debut album by Rick Astley, <laughs> titled <laughs> Whenever You Need Somebody. I was looking down the list of things that came out in November of 1987, and I was like, oh, good, Rick Astley released something. That'll be my joke one then, and you guys picked it. <laughs> well, hold, hold on, and this, this, there's reasons why I picked this over other albums that were on there. Because first off, depending on what list you look at, there's some inaccuracies in the list. Um, and we've we came across that when we did this ourselves. But this one, it definitely came out on November 16th, 1987. It sold over 15 million copies worldwide. It had six singles, which is huge. Most notable, Together Forever, which I'm sure John's a huge fan of, probably played at his wedding. Uh, and then the song <laughs> that will live it. on forever. <laughs> yeah. This song will live on forever in Rick Roll history, and that's never going to give you up. So even if you don't, know the song you know the song you know it's the song is it's it was also a number one single in pretty much every country in 1987 so this was a huge album at the time like it or not yeah not since do by Hasselhoff as a record just performed so well in multiple (laughs) countries but if you look at pop culture relevance I mean this is that song people still know for that reason my daughter's 12 years old and she loves that song I don't know why. She actually likes it. She doesn't like it ironically. She actually likes the song. Well, the so. kids, as they say these days, that, that song really slaps. <laughs> <laughs> Do the kids say that? Look, we all know about the horrors of uh, we all know about the horrors of waterboarding. It doesn't mean that we should <laughs> run out and engage in it wantonly. Um, um, well, this has got to be uh, does anyone have any more statements? Sorry, before I go ahead and make my... Uh, do, you, do you want us... If it's that close, do you want us to throw out uh, top singles or anything from that month or anything? Or do you 
have a direction. Uh, no, I'm. I, my mind is already blown that there were six singles on that Rick Astley album because <laughs> I, I thought he released one song and, and then, I don't know, got tragically ill or something. Uh, and I, I, I have no idea. Like, I, I literally just thought, I mean, talk about one hit wonder. To say that there were six singles off that album, I, I had no idea. He actually, if you go to his Spotify, he's got probably a dozen albums. Matter of fact, he just released one like a year ago. Yeah, it, ab- it, it <laughs> so. absolutely blows blows my mind. It, it means that the 80s were so much worse than it felt like to live <laughs> through them. <laughs> Stop. All right, so on to Judge John Cross. Why I am a really bad judge. <laughs> just quickly, why I'm a really bad judge is that I've, you know, obviously this show is about pop culture re- relevance. It came out of the Poop Culture podcast. Um, so it was all about sort of the relevance of this stuff and and uh, the importance of this stuff over time. And, you know, anyone who knows me knows that I give absolutely no credence whatsoever to the populace at large. I think most people are probably idiots. And when they get together in groups, they're even bigger fistfuls of idiots. However, <laughs> I need to put that aside to make my judges ruling, which makes this show just so difficult for me to do. However, it also, I have to say, the, <laughs> however. the, the for, however, however, <laughs> you shut your trap, Rick. This is my time now. No, I'm kidding. Um, could you get four more just fucking bizarre albums than the ones I've been presented with? I mean, seriously, there were so many others that you could have picked. Would you want us to throw a dock in? I mean, you could have gone How You Like Me Now by Cool Mo D. Uh, you could have gone, yeah. to be fair, you could have gone Cloud Nine by George Harrison, which was sort of his comeback album, sort of. And it was, that was his last yeah. album as well. And we, we, looked we, we did one. toss that It back wasn't his growth. last album. He yeah. did Brainwashed after that, just before he died. Oh, you, uh, correct, he also correct, re-released All Things Must Pass with other stuff on it. But, um, uh, it was his, it was around the time that he was doing the Traveling Wilburys with the other guys and it kind <sighs> of hit big, uh, Cloud Nine. So you could have done that. You could have done Cher's album. Um, you could have done uh Madonna's album, Black Sabbath's album, lots of uh But that Black Sabbath, yeah, it wasn't even it was with some I don't even remember the guy's name who's the lead yeah, singer. It was at like the time. their last lead singer before they stopped for yeah. a while and and then brought Ozzy back. And then uh Madonna's a compilation dance album. So I mean You've got love you by gotta look at the camera. Come on, who doesn't remember boogalooing for that in nineteen eighty seven? Uh, <laughs> and then from the 1990s, um, you've got uh, Elton John's classic. Who doesn't remember To Be Continued, Elton John's classic album? Literally nobody. You've got Stick It Live <laughs> by Slaughter. Again, another band that was lost to the uh, dump fire of history. Uh, you've got <laughs> Lush uh, put out their album Gala. There's so many classics that come out that year. Um <laughs> But, <laughs> you know, just looking at a social, a social Grace by Psychotic Waltz. I mean, come on. I put that on nightly. Um, but considering, uh, I mean, obviously I've heard of, of Scorpions, um, but I've, I've never heard of Five Man. Uh, what was it? Tesla? Never, never heard of them. Sorry, well, guys. They, they make really? cars now. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> cars that I'll never, they ever be able over. to afford. Um, Real renaissance. And see, I'm, I'm, 
I'm, I'm going to call it, just flat out going to call it for 1987, but my reasoning is this. My reasoning is less than zero features sleazy James Spader, and whenever sleazy James Spader comes up onto a list, <laughs> I just have to plump for that one because he... Uh, he well he he causes me to become engorged through his sleaziness. So uh, uh, him being in Less Than Zero, which by the way, Less Than Zero, such a depressing, uh, melancholy, yeah. uh, boring film, really. Only uh, livened up by sleazy James Spader forcing <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. to give head for crack, which is just wonderful. That's right. We've all been there. I was explaining this to Mark before we went on the show. I was like, I'm pretty sure he made him into a prostitute, but I'm not 100% Pre- sure. Pretty much makes him into a mouth whore, mouth whore for blow. <laughs> That's pretty much what he does. A but, uh, and because of that, just so I got to say Robert Downey Jr. and mouth whore for blow in the same sentence, 1987 wins it. Uh, however, I don't care uh, for Rick Astley. Uh, not even in a uh, meme-heavy, ironic world in which we live. He can go, him and his shoulder pads can go fuck himself. But <laughs> the Less Than Zero soundtrack, probably the best album out of the four of them. We'll take it either way. All right, Mark, uh, I think, should we go to news now? I, I'm pretty sure uh, these one-point rounds, let's just do news. You want to start this one off, Man Crush? Yeah, sure. All right. All right, news for 1987, uh, November 1987. Uh, this news story right here, it's about a real hardcore girl fight, something everybody wants to hear. You got this tall, leggy blonde named Barbie, and uh, she ends up kicking the living shit out of this pink-haired rock star named Jim. Sound like something that's you guys know where this yeah. is going? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> when, when your best news story has to do with some toys you know it's been a good month all right yeah i'm sure she doesn't need much introduction but the 12 and a half inch teenage rock star named jem <laughs> sang her swan song in november of 1987 just a mere year after hasbro introduced jem and the holograms as an effort to derail the incumbent girl dynasty that was held by barbie at the time and uh, when gem was made uh, mattel encounter released a rock band by barbie and that went on to sell record-breaking sales over that course of 12 months so because of that by the end of 1987 hasbro had like nine million dollar surplus in gem dolls and uh, they had to heavily discount them all to get them sold so in spite of that hasbro pulls the plug on gem in November of 1987, after one year. Took her off life support, huh? That's sad. I never knew that was the true story behind it. Yeah. <laughs> and then they made Wild. a shitty movie in uh, 20, what was that, 2016? I was going to say, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, that was quite recently. It, it was, was It was horrible. 2015, actually. It was. Uh, oh, man, it was that long ago? Holy shit. So all she does is fail. Yeah. <laughs> but she does have a cult <laughs> who, following. Who dredged that up as well? Who in 2015 sat around and went, Oh, what license can we dredge from the annals of history and fart onto the screen? <laughs> I know, Gem and the Holograms. And Gem. everyone went, what? What do we have already in stock that we own the rights to? Or what can we pick up for pennies on the dollar? It's so. You know, it is kind of sad because yeah. girls back then, you really didn't have. You had Barbie, you know, maybe like My Little Pony. And so they threw Gem into the equation. 
So they liked that shit for a year. Maybe some girls grasped onto that, and they just said, nah, that shit sucks. <laughs> and they just pulled it back, and then they were left with Barbie and My Little Pony. They should have done My Little Mouth Hole for Blow. That would have flown off the, <laughs> flown off the shelves. <laughs> it was just Robert Downey Jr. doll. <laughs> Just had a huge streak of white powder up his face (laughs) and a little bit of white, creamy substance. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) jeez. He did have a kung fu grip, though. (laughs) Yeah, one of these motions. (laughs) You pressed a little button in his ass. (laughs) (laughs) He he bent over at the hips. All right, Mark, what do you have? All right, well, for my news story, we're going to go to November 18th, 1987, and that's when it was announced that Sony would purchase CBS Music for $2 billion, originally uh, they offered $1.25 billion, but CBS balked at that time and sat on the offer. So they upped it to $2 billion. And when all was said and done, CBS Records, the pioneer of the LP, repository of all the great Broadway musical recordings from My Fair Lady to A Chorus Line. And it also happens to be the recording home of artists such as Michael Jackson, Barbara Streisand, Billy Joel, the boss, Bruce Springsteen, and Cindy Lauper. All of these artists passed into Japanese hands, and it was the very first time a Japanese jumbo acquisition of an American company had taken place, and the transaction had made international headlines. Co-founder and chairman of Sony speaking about the company, and he had said that in 20 years from now, the hardware innovations, the... um, Uh, Sex toys? It wasn't sex toys, Bo. I'm pretty sure of that. He said that in 20 years, the innovations and the investments that Sony made into the music library would give its hardware innovations uh, a big step forward in the next 20 years to come. And of course, he was 100% right about that because in the next 20 years, Sony used its music library to create products such as PlayStation and the Walkman and the CD Man. So Sony purchasing CBS <laughs> Fucked up records. a bunch of Marvel movies. Yeah. Fucked up a bunch of Marvel movies. <laughs> so November 18th, 1987, Sony purchases the CBS Music Library for $2 billion. All right. Well, it's not as good as Gem, but that's pretty solid. <laughs> hey, it's pretty outrageous. <laughs> All right. What do you guys have for the 90s? And I, like, I just want to say that we're so close right now. November 87 and 19 or November 90. I feel like it is eighties versus eighties, but the tail end of right. the eighties. Yeah. You know, it's it's really close. You and you could tell by the things that we're throwing out that things are really similar. It's not like when we have a ten year gap and you can really tell the difference. I feel like a lot of this stuff is very close. On to you guys. Is a jet taking off somewhere? What the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go first just because I couldn't find much information about this, but evidently, uh, November of 1990, the earliest known portable digital camera sold in the United States uh, shipped to its purchaser. Uh, And that's the extent of the information I have. So on to you. Holy shit. (laughs) That is a record for the past year. I could not find any further information on that. So your news story is somebody bought something and it was shipped to them. Yeah. <laughs> what, did, did CNN put this together? It was the wow. inaugural shipping of a portable digital camera. 
No need for detail. No, fuck it. I'm a cut and dry guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that is kind of big though. If that's the first digital camera sold, you know, if he's like the first guy to get one, yeah, then I see can see that's a that's a pretty big news story. Who's the guy? Uh, Jeff Jefferson. <laughs> Did you say the Jeffersons were the first no, people no, to have Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Allen Jefferson. Oh. I don't know why. Of course. All right. Let's see. James better knock our socks off with this. Now I don't feel so bad about Jim. I'm going I'm to keep this short because I know how somebody feels about technology. So <laughs> Bo went on and on and on. Like Bo was. <laughs> I like to drag it out. You know me. Uh, the first known web page was written on November 13th by Tim Berners-Lee. It ran on a next computer at the European Organization of Nuclear Research. So this is our first World Wide Web, as we know it now, www.whatever. Uh, the first web page, it was HTTP, www.pornhub. Oh, I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a bunch of that I'm not gonna That play. was last viewed, James. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tuesday, 13th of 1990. <laughs> Pages you may like. But yeah, the, that forever revolutionized what we use every single fucking day now. Pornhub. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Do, do we know what website it was? Like, do we know what was written on it? The or website was it just like, was hello? Pretty, <laughs> it was just a page that explained how to write a website and explaining what hyperlinks are. Oh, fucking nerds are so boring. Can, can, I, can I just throw... Nerds are just I'm like, just gonna I'm going to do in. the first webpage ever, and on it is going to disguise how I did this webpage. <laughs> oh, you fucking... I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out there because I am in IT and I have been for a long time. I've been on the internet since '91, and I can tell you right now that the first web page ever that went live it is the one that you're referencing. But that actually went live in August of '91 and not November. It was first presented. It didn't go live yet. Uh, well, actually, it did. It did go live. It went live in August of '91, and it was a same exact story. It was the European Organization of Nuclear Research, uh, CERN. Um, and it, it ran on a next computer, which is actually, uh, you know, Steve jobs, but that was in August. Somebody could, somebody could fact check it. Are you talking 90 or 91? Cause we're talking 90. Yeah. We? It was 91. Uh, if, if I'm correct, somebody else can try to fact check me, but I'm almost positive. positive. Four or five websites and it kept saying November 19th. Hold on. Let me hold on. Maybe I'm this is. It's uh, all right. He always does this. Man crush always just derails this with some <laughs> technical gubbins. Nobody. This is what turns the show into a three-hour affair instead yeah. of a two and a half. I know technology. Uh... It was August. <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, if you Google, here we go from uh, businessinsider.com. First website ever made, August 6, nineteen ninety-one. Here, I'll uh, throw the link for everybody. Featured a nude photo of Sally Field <laughs> taking a dump. I threw that right in the chat there, so you can take James. A look at that. Uh, James, do you have the five sites that you went to? Uh, just because we want <laughs> we we want this to be both listening and visual gold. So if we could just send each other web links about a boring website that was created by nerds. Somewhere around the beginning of the decade of the 90s, I'm already tired. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to keep this short. <laughs> no, no, I know. No, James. Uh, but honestly, in all seriousness, let's uh, fact check this. If you could send us at least two uh, links that corroborate your story versus Rick's one, that would be great. 
Well, I just found another one from Huff Post. It also says 1991. I'm just looking right. for maybe there's. You're picking ones from now. Have you got a website from 1990 that says that it was the first, first web browser in 19 November 1990 while employed? The browser was released outside of CERN in 1991. Mm. So, so maybe you just got. It, which is what I said as he wrote it. I didn't say it was out there. Uh, you did say it was live. So that's. That's what I was going off of. Somebody did put up <laughs> lemonparty.org, which. <laughs> <laughs> and meatspin.com. <laughs> no clue what that is. Let me click on that. I'll let John decide. You look You look at the links. Yeah, John, let us know what you think about uh, meatspin.com. <laughs> <laughs> it's the all new lemon party. Obviously, we didn't have shit for news either, so. Obviously. There's, yeah, fuck news. There's always ones that are uh, really bad. There's usually one that's terrible. Quite the end of the Cold War wasn't quite the beginning of Gulf War. This, this, un- unlike the album round, uh, <laughs> unlike the album round, this one is this one is tough in another way. Uh, <laughs> it, um, you may as well just give it to the '80s <laughs> because, and I have to say this, uh, Knightley and Brutley or whatever your name is, um, <laughs> the, the the two stories you came up with, one was. Uh, uh, a portable camera sold to someone, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been. Might have been. Uh, and he, but he did receive it. We don't know who it was, but he, he definitely did <laughs> he receive it. He got the it. shit out of that camera. Yeah. So, fuck you, Amazon. We were doing two-day delivery. <laughs> and picking up CODs. 28, year, 28 years before you, uh, Bezos, <laughs> you fucking bastard. Um, and then uh, the first known World Wide Web website was written, possibly, and it was uh, and it was boring. But it wasn't live yet. But it was written, maybe we don't know. And but we do know it was very tedious. The website, whatever it was, at least like at least tell me that the first website that was ever written had like a picture of the guy who wrote it. With like I'm with stupid T-shirt or something like being like yeah, I like at least at least like some kind of human interest. But no, it was just like how there was a picture on it. Unfortunately, it's still fucking loading. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to think in 1990 and 1991, you're using Link right. or links to uh, to get on websites. There were there was no Netscape Navigator, no Internet Explorer. So there weren't right. really that many images. It was just links. Yeah. So that's what you got was links. Was that that thing that made the like fax machine noise? That sound. No. Oh, that was a that was a modem. That was later. That has nothing to do with that. <laughs> I'm on the internet. I don't know how it works, but I'm on the internet. <laughs> anyway, wait till next dueling decades when Rick Mancrush gives us a, gives us a description of how the modem works. <laughs> oh. and, and John puts a and John puts a shotgun in his mouth. Um, and Ooh, then from, bonus round. And then from 1987, we have Jem and the who who gives a fuck versus Barbie. Um, cause Gem of the Holograms, really, I only even learned about what that was when the movie came out and the movie looked so bad that I was like, I'm not going near that nor whatever spun it off. <laughs> um, but I think Mark saves it with the Sony purchasing CBS music for two, $2 billion only because he mentioned Billy Joel. Uh, and the idea that the, Jap- the Japanese had tried so hard from Pearl Harbor onwards 
to get their hands on Billy Joel. And it wasn't until November of 1987 that the Japanese finally swooped in and was like, fuck it. We've tried everything else. Uh, we're going to just buy him for $2 billion. So well done, Japan. Uh, you finally prized <laughs> Billy Joel away from the grip of America and into the uh, bosom of Japan. Well done for that. And because of that, uh, the Mamelukes again uh, take this round and win for the ages. Awesome. Let me throw out, though, that like I said about Jem, that just means that you guys had an awesome news month. That just means there was no depressing crazy shit that went on in november 1990 damn right a digital the camera was shipped top, yeah <laughs> it was shipped to some dude so, if that's the best yes. thing. <laughs> yeah and then stick it on a website yeah if we if we can get a month like that now that'd be fucking fantastic what'd you get oh some dude shipped some shoes yeah, I do long for the news cycle to simply be like, and this guy in Iowa got a puzzle. <laughs> like, that would be fucking amazing rather than... We think it was a camera. Yeah, rather than this guy in Iowa got gunned down for... I don't know. Anyway. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that under-deliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time, you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax, limited time offer, prices may vary for delivery. <laughs> All right, uh, Mark, where do you want to go? We're still, uh, we're single points, so... I'll uh, let you pick this one. All right. Uh, let's see. You want to go to Electric Avenue? No, but we can go over to Hot Products. Ugh. Uh, yeah, we could do that now. All right. And I'll start this one off. In 1986, engineer Scott Stillinger, he was having trouble teaching his two young kids how to catch. So he came up with an interesting product that he developed. His fist. Uh, called the Koosh Ball. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The product was patented in 1987 and was available in time, hitting stores for November of 1987. Uh, initially, the media made fun of the ball. Uh, they, they didn't quite get it. Uh, they c compared it to a Star Trek Tribble, a psychedelic sea urchin. They were saying it was the pet rock of the 80s. But the sales, they differed. Uh, became one of the top-selling toys within two years of its release. Uh, of course, the Koosh Ball is still around today. Uh, so that's my pick, is the invention of the Koosh Ball in November of 1987. And if you notice, I still have a Koosh Ball here, and this is an original Koosh Ball that I had shortly after it came out. I can't say that this one's from exactly 87. Might be a few years later, but it original matches Koosh your Ball. Shirt. It does, hence why I'm wearing the red, white, and blue shirt. Nice. Because I have the red, white, and blue Koosh Ball original. Man, thank goodness he didn't color coordinate with his Koosh Ball. <laughs> no, no. It still would have been red, white, and blue, though. <laughs> or just blue. Or just Waffle. blue. <laughs> well, I didn't tell you what portions were red, which portions were white, and what portions were blue. So uh, Nobody wants to know that. It's a family show. <laughs> 
All right, this pick, you know, I know this is going to be something where, you know, Mark pukes in his mouth a little bit, and perhaps any of this guy's detractors out there are not going to like it. However, if you just take it for what it is and you allow yourself to set aside your personal views, it's a huge hot product, okay? On November 1st, 1987, journalist Tony Schwartz co-wrote and released a book with Donald Trump called The Art of the Deal. The Mm. book was the number one bestseller for New York Times for 13 straight weeks. It actually did spend 48 weeks on the list altogether. It's hard to pinpoint with this book how many copies were actually sold because they didn't start really keeping track about the uh, sales until 2001 and after. So everything was kind of put together. And then I know Trump did say in his election year in 2016 that it was the best-selling business book of all time. However, that was debunked by an analytics firm uh, a couple of years ago during the what? election basis. Are so, you saying he yeah. lied about something? <laughs> no. If you if you listen to the book, are you it's saying just like, his hyperbole just... is not based entirely on fact? Come on now. <laughs> no, if you just <laughs> and I think when you just say it was a huge book. release, what you mean it was a huge release is what you actually <laughs> well, that, mean. Yeah, that's exactly what I did mean. Yeah. Um, but and it sold look, based on bigly, their research. Okay, it sold really no, bigly. It, it really did. Uh, according to this analytics firm. They did the research. They went back. They, they looked at all the numbers, and it, it's not 100% accurate, but they did say that it was number five all time for business books. Uh, just to give it some uh, comparison, the number one selling book of all time in the business sphere was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Everybody knows that book. Uh, selling 15 million copies. Uh, so it's still a huge book, but all those stats aside, this book is partially responsible for making Donald Trump a household name. You know, prior to this, you know, this was just a rich kid who everybody, not everybody, like people knew about him, but he wasn't like the Kardashian type that you see today. Just because you're rich, you have TV shows and all that. He didn't have that back then. But this book, when it hit, I remember as a kid going into JCPenney and there was a table set up as you walk through the front door where the book was set up with a fucking board game that was corresponding to the book that went with. And you don't see that for a book. So it's it was an enormous product for the time. Uh, people were buying this shit like hotcakes, and they wanted to learn who Donald Trump was. And obviously, it worked because now the dude's the president. Whether you like him or not, it's a huge friggin' product. So, have you ever met anyone who reads business books or plays board games based on business books? Because I guarantee, <laughs> if you've met that person, you're not friends with them. You've looked at them oh. at a dinner party and gone, ah, no fucking way, man, and walked. <laughs> I've actually, away. I, I'll, I'll say this: I've, I've not read his book or Dale Carnegie's book, but I own them both on Audible, and somebody else read them to me. Oh, okay. Does his book start get given millions of dollars by someone else, and then fritter that away, and somehow still make more money? Is that how his book it's, begins? Even listen, even to his detractors, if you listen to the book, it's not a bad book. It you wouldn't. It's, it's a different Donald Trump, but it's the same Donald Trump. It's you have to listen to it. To, yeah, the to guy know who wrote the book, about. Tony Schwartz, is is a great author. He's he's always on the news now, still constantly. Not so much a big fan of uh, of his uh, former coworker now, but he's a he's a credible journalist and he's a really good writer. So. But if you take it for what it is, hot products of November of 1987, that's a fucking hot product. Oh, yeah. So that's what we got. Uh, yeah. 
Coos ball and art of the deal. <laughs> oh, the comments I could make, but I won't. All right, on to the next uh, team. Grab him by the coosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. All right, I'll take it away on this one. Um, so I'm going by technicality on here. Uh, in November 21st, 1990, in Japan, Super Mario World was released. <laughs> was one of two launch games for the Super Nintendo, which was the new system at the time. Uh, the other one was F-Zero. Uh, it sold 20 million copies. It was the best-selling Super Nintendo game. Went on to win Game of the Year the following year. It was It's considered one of the best video games of all time still today. Uh, it's your run-of-the-bill Mario, side-scroller, get to the end, find the flag, but it added the the feather power-up thing that give you the cape and you could fly and float yeah. across. Uh, it was also the first appearance of Yoshi. And, Ooh. and Wilfred Brimley. <laughs> As Yoshi. <laughs> <laughs> Eating everything in sight. All the oatmeal. <laughs> the yellow turtle, the Koopa that he ate, I don't know what power that was. It was like, like he farted and he killed enemies around him. <laughs> <laughs> I do that at the office every day. But yeah, I mean, that was a major part of my childhood. Ah, uh, it's a solid pick. Yeah, that is. That was a great game. It really was. Well, I'm going to stick along the yeah. same lines and go with another video game that was released in uh, November. November 9th, Days of Thunder. Uh, the video game was... No, I'm just kidding. It was released, but I'm not calling that. <laughs> it's oh, like, damn. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, I'm actually going to go with Mega Man 3, which uh, has sold over a million copies worldwide since it was released. 48th best-selling Capcom game. IGN ranked at number 16 in its top 100 NES games of all time. Uh, and GamePro ranked it as the third best 8-bit video game of all time. Evidently, this guy, I've never played this, but uh, evidently it was one of the most difficult games for a lot of people. Somebody, somebody equated brain surgery to being easier than playing Mega Man 3. Or beating Mega Man Three. Wow! But 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 that person was clearly wrong. <laughs> was there another episode where uh, a partner of yours, I think it was Carlos, threw out a Mega Man? Right? Wasn't it like Mega Man Five or something? Something it was like Mega that. Mega Man Two. It's when they invented uh, the slide move. Gotcha. We, okay. We've I definitely had Mario and Mega Man show up on the show before. Bastards. Yeah. yeah. How can you do an '80s and '90s show and there have them not be repeat offenders? Yeah. No. Completely. Yeah. You know? They're pretty constants in 80s and 90s pop culture. They're solid. Yep. Solid picks, guys. All right. All right. So Thanks, it comes down to me again. And uh, a heart around this one uh, because I feel like um, all four, despite my uh, uh, personal taste and preference, all four <laughs> are very relevant. Um, the Koosh Ball seems to me like the Koosh Ball is one of those inventions that I look at and I go, First of all, who the fuck came up with that? Why? <laughs> and thirdly, like, why is it still around? Like, why is it still a thing? Because you're right. You can go into, like, dollar stores anywhere and buy, like, a Kush ball. It's, it's insane that they're still, they still exist. But to find out it was a guy who was having trouble teaching his children to catch. Like, mm -hmm. if anything was the beginning of the downfall of human civilization, <laughs> it was this fucking asshole for which a tennis ball was too much for these kids. They were too wet, even for a tennis ball. I hate to say it, but, like, when I was a kid, 
We had a teacher, not even a parent, but a fucking teacher would get a cricket ball, which is harder than a baseball, stand us in a circle, and then just spin around and lob it at us without even telling us. (laughs) (laughs) And this guy's like, I don't know how to play catch with my children. Oh, this is the guy who should have been dragged down to the street and beaten with sticks. Never allowed to replicate, um, uh, never allowed to... uh, have children in the first place is really replicate. What we're learning about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you say, dude? <laughs> said replicate. Replicate. Yeah, this is the guy who never should never have been allowed. He should have had his testicles removed the moment he went. I think tennis balls are too hard. He should have just been. No, sorry, dude, you're gone. Away from the human race. Be, be, just go away. Um, and then uh, uh, the Donald Trump book <laughs> out of the deal. Um, a, a very American phenomena, I think. Um, d- definitely the whole like looking up to and reading of uh, uh, business books and businessmen. Uh, I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, coming from a country where any kind of hierarchy, even in business, is looked at as massively dubious and something to be <laughs> avoided or ridiculed. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, not so here and, and, and bless America for that because we wouldn't have so many of the wonderful things that we have in the world if it wasn't, uh, for people looking up a businessman. Uh, the art of the deal, however, and Donald Trump, I, uh, you know, putting my thing aside, I understand, uh, what, just what a pop culture moment, uh, that apparently still is. Uh, <laughs> madness. <laughs> 31 years later, who the fuck would have predicted that? Um, <laughs> Even crazier, if you go to Audible, which is the only place I get books, by the way. We're not sponsored by them, but I don't I get books, books from Audible as me. well. I can't be bothered to read yeah, either. It's, it's fucking awesome. Yeah. But if you go there, it's got like 5,000 reviews, like 4,000 and change, which is insane yeah. for book reviews on See, that site. I can't do Audible. Who the hell just wants to sit there and listen to people talk? Well, I commute. I go I go on a subway <laughs> yeah. every single day, so I just throw it on. When I run out of monthly podcasts, I just throw on. Oh, I see. I get it. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> I get it. Oh, I'm that tired. It, it, it took me a while. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, out of the deal. I mean, yeah, like I say, uh, the, just the popularity of some things blow my fucking mind. Um, and the popularity of some people just cannot, I I couldn't explain it. Give me scratch paper and a pen for a hundred years. I couldn't tell you. (laughs) Um, and then over to November, 1990, two huge video games, huge video games. Um, huge, uh, huge. Huge video games. Um, but they got small hands. Yeah, very small hands. What I like about Donald Trump is he's the reverse panda. He's got like the white eyes and then the like dark brown, orange, everything else. Kind of like the raccoon from Super Mario Brothers 3. Yeah. What the, 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 <laughs> right. The thing that will always boggle my mind is that someone could look at anything so fucking fake. And be like, he speaks for me. That's what blows my mind. It's just, it's all fake. Yet people are like, oh, I love the fakeness. <laughs> I just don't get it. Anyway, uh, I really, really want to give it to November 1990. I really do. However. Computer games and their huge <laughs> and cultural impact in Mario and Mega Man, which I've never heard of apart from this show. But Mario I've heard of. Um, Twice. But the Koosh and Trump have to win it. And I'll tell you why. They have to win it. Koosh and Trump win because... 
30 years later, they prove that I am just so monumentally far away from the pulse. They just prove that I just will never understand humanity ever. Because 30 years later, they're, st- they're not still going strong. They might as well represent humanity at its <laughs> base level. Donald, what would you do if Donald Trump was giving like a fucking speech and had a koosh ball in his hand? Your head would just I, I, fucking explode. Fun. First of all, we're not sure that that isn't what lives on top of his head in the first place. <laughs> Secondly, because <laughs> he looks like a tribble. I mean, the whole, anyway, but the, the, the second thing is that it wouldn't surprise me if he suddenly at a podium pulled up a bunch of kush balls and went, who remembers these as children? Or something He's like just that. pulling them. Just fucking start snapping his fingers. He starts fucking juggling with them or like, this is this is Hillary and just starts like punching him or something. I mean, it would not fucking surprise me. What, what if as, he brought the think, manufacturing of kush balls back home to America? Oh, man. Um... Where where are they? Who who gives? I don't know. I'm fucking. Know. <laughs> if we brought it back, to I'm America, sure it's overseas. This is this is the other thing I love is that people are like, yeah, bring manufacturing jobs back to America. You're like, okay, yeah, bring jobs where people stand in factories for ten hours, hating themselves to the very core of their being, putting one thing in another thing and pushing it along to another person. <laughs> and before anyone says you're a privileged white guy, I've done that job. I worked in a factory for a whole summer once, and it is the most... John, by all intents and purposes, everyone hates what they do for eight hours a day, yes. or ten hours, exactly. or five hours, so but, it doesn't matter. We don't need to bring koosh balls back to America to make it great again, that's all I'm saying. Um, John's going to run for president. He's gonna His platform is going to be send jobs away. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> some, some Americans need to work less. Listen... Uh, I'm actually the funny thing is is I'm I'm actually all for bringing jobs back to America. I'm just not sure the Koosh ball manufacturing is just what's gonna <laughs> come on. Who doesn't want to work for Americoosh? Tip us. <laughs> it employs six people. Yeah. Come on, <laughs> get your hands on some Koosh. I prefer Koosh light actually. Oh, now has anyone ever made a bong out of a Koosh ball? <laughs> could you and could you smoke kush, kush, kush. It? that's what i mean kush kush, kush <laughs> there's kush. no solid core to the inside of a kush ball right <laughs> marcus tries this is the part try. of dueling decades where mark dissects a kush ball <laughs> for the viewers at home but they they repre- let's just move the, on the, to the next yeah, round the just move on Trump represent everything i loathe about humanity and yet they're still weirdly popular 30 years later you win sorry about that guys you got to give a hand. To, I think we just saw John change before our eyes because he picked something he did not like and he picked the no. round anyway. Well, That's because amazing. I, uh, I have to say, if if the other people, if the other team had um, something other than two video games, if it was like Super Mario and then like one other thing. So I should have gone with Days of Thunder is what you you're should saying. have gone with Days of Thunder because <laughs> if nothing else, it gave us uh, Nicole Kidman and John and Tom Cruise ruining each other's lives forever mm. uh, in 8-bit form and cocaine <laughs> masses <laughs> amount of cocaine uh and don simpson you are missed all right well i think we should definitely go to tv next yeah mark and then we'll that way john can finish up in his glory with movies <laughs> i think that works out fine we should state the uh the comments and opinions of judge john cross <laughs> do not represent the comments and opinions of 
uh, Dueling Decades and or Poop Culture Limited. Etc. 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 Hey, what, these are John's thoughts. Whatever he comes yeah. out with, we we still uh, we respect it, and that's how the wind comes out. <laughs> thoughts from the John. Um, I forgot what your TV choice was, but I think it was solid. So, Koosh Bowl 2020. Want- no, I'm sorry. <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to start that out, go ahead. Sure. I'll start mine off. Uh, and I'm excited. It is something I get to talk about that I absolutely loved for TV. And this was took place on November 26th, 1987, which happened to be Thanksgiving night. And this started a new tradition. And as a tradition to be known as the Thanksgiving night tradition, this was the very first Survivor Series. Uh-huh. The WWF Survivor <laughs> Series. <laughs> Both crying inside. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure we've all seen this event. If you're a fan of professional wrestling, uh, this was major. It was the first big event that the WWF had done since WrestleMania 3, and they wanted to capitalize on a few things. One being the enormous success of the feud of Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. And also they wanted to stick a little bit of a, a jab at competitor WCW that was also holding its Starcade event the same night. And Vince McMahon and the WWF wanted to muscle and did muscle out uh, the cable companies to carry their event over WCW. But in the main event, we saw Andre the Giant pinning Bam Bam Bigelow to be the lone survivor and the and the winner. Other matches on that uh, included my favorite all-time Survivor Series match, the 10-on-10 tag team elimination match, which featured at the time all of the great tag teams. You had the British Bulldogs in there, Demolition, the Bolsheviks, the Islanders, the Hart Foundation, Dino Bravo and Greg Valentine. Also on the card that night, Brutus Beefcake, Jake Roberts, Jim Duggan, Randy Savage, and Ricky Steamboat uh, defeated the team of Harley Race, Hercules, the Honky Tonk Man, and the outlaw Ron Bass with the legendary Bobby Heenan and Jimmy Hart in their corner. That's a friggin' lineup. Thanksgiving night, 1987, the start of a brand new tradition that uh, is still going on to this day. It's not on Thanksgiving anymore, is it, Bo? Uh, it's actually coming up this Sunday, so it's yeah, it's a week before. But this was the very first one, November 26, 1987. All right, man, Crush, over to you. All right, normally when we cover television, you know, it's typically about, you know, like Mark had an event or a TV show or a new channel or a network or an episode, but never something like this, all right? So on November 22nd, 1987, Right around 9 p.m. in Chicago, a WGN Channel 9 sportscast was interrupted by a signal intrusion. For 25 seconds, a man appeared on the screen in a Max Hedrum mask and just stared blankly at the screen. And it's the creepiest 25 seconds you could ever see. However, then around 11.15 p.m., same night, on a local PBS affiliate, also in Chicago area, WTTW on Channel 11, a similar signal intrusion took place, and this time, the hacker hijacked his way into a Doctor Who episode that was airing at uh, at 11 o'clock, and there was sound this time. So this time, yeah. you had Max Hedrum, this guy in a mask, humming the theme song to a 1960s cartoon called Clutch Cargo. Then he threw a dildo at the video camera, 
sported a Pepsi can instead of a Coke can, which uh, at the time, Max Hedrum was the uh, spokesperson for Coke. He then bent over, pulled his pants down, and got spanked by a French maid <laughs> with a fly swatter. And the best part of the story is, 31 years later, it was international news, and it's still an unsolved mystery. I thought you were going to say, and the thing is, 31 years later... That was me. <laughs> Wait, are the statutes of limitations over? Yet, we or? cannot confirm nor deny that the hacking was done by Rick Mancrush. There's been a lot of speculation. He keeps going on about what a technological whiz he was back in the late 80s. And right. Well, Josh, just throw this out there. I would have only been nine years old in 1987. Which makes it all more impressive. <laughs> There, there has been a lot of speculation over the years of uh, you know different people, especially since the uh, you know Reddit came along. A lot of people have been thrown out on Reddit who they thought it was, like people they grew up around and guys they interacted with. And uh, I think the last one, as of a couple of years ago, they said that basically, and I think this makes the most sense. That it was like an inside job, uh, and that was the only way that this was possible. There was people at the networks themselves that did this and you know conspired together but again everyone kept their mouth shut because nobody knows who did this shit and this is huge it was it was a big deal and it's still cool because nobody knows who the hell it was i'm just trying to wrap my head around how <laughs> creepy that's not, i gotta look that up later yeah look up the if you go to youtube just look up the uh, max headroom hack uh all together i think it's like like maybe a little over two minutes with both clips together and it's freaky shit See, I wish whoever did that had created the first ever website. Then they would have put something really decent <laughs> on it. <laughs> they would have been like French maids, Max Headroom. Yeah, we could have figured some shit out there. Dildos slapping the ass with a fly swatter. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. So, Rick, tell me this. If the first website was in 1991, August, how quickly was the first porn site? Was that like two days later? Oh, <laughs> the day after. <laughs> Actually, with all technology things, and this is where it kind of differs, and maybe they were getting pushed by the uh, porn industry, but they're usually the spearheads of everything yeah. technology. They're the first ones to come out with everything. Um, it usually stems with them doing the research, getting it all figured out, and then somebody else takes it and, uh, and runs with it. Right. But who knows? Yeah, probably the next day. Maybe before that, and we didn't know about it. Yeah. They're normally thrusting through with a mushroom-tipped <laughs> mushroom shaft. They're very enthusiastic. All right, we're, we're the 90s. Go guy. on, 90s. All right. Uh, let's see. We're on television, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I'm going to go with the uh, the debuts of some pretty key players in a uh, Saturday Night Institution. I'm talking, of course, Saturday Night Live. In November of uh, 1990, the debuts of Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, Chris Rock, Tim Meadows, Julia Sweeney, and Rob Schneider all made their debuts as uh, cast members on SNL in November of 1990. Ooh, good pick, man. Woo! There's a lot of drugs right there. <laughs> and then you had the other six. <laughs> Damn, that's a good one. I'm going to go with made-for-TV movie Stephen King's It aired on ABC November 18th and the 20th. It had 30 million, 30 million viewers on its premiere. Uh, the plot was a bunch of dumb kids went poking around in a gutter, found a clown, tried to kill them. 
fucked that up, grew up 30 years later, went back, tried to do it again, someone died, and they finally killed him. Spoiler. That's basically <laughs> <laughs> Notable child actors was Jonathan Brandis, who was Kevin Buchanan on One Life to Live, and Seth Green. Uh, 1990 notable actors was John Ritter, Annette O'Toole, and Tim Curry. It won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Music Composition for a Miniseries or a Special. Uh, fun fact, due to ABC's lack of time, or their time commitment to this, they couldn't fit everything of the uh, novel in, but they left out uh, a key key player that all the male characters lost their virginity to Beverly Marsh. Wow. Yeah. The director was upset they left left that out. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been weird for ABC that had TGI Fridays. <laughs> With full house and fucking come on. Come on. I th- I think I think I would uh, still be watching that mini series of it today if everyone Lost their virginity to Beverly Marsh. If that was just a, <laughs> if that was just some sort of glorious, mindless orgy in the middle of the the series, <laughs> or if they just replaced the end of the uh, second episode with the horrible spider, get rid of that and just have a spider of human bodies just interlocking and destroying Beverly Marsh. Anyway. <laughs> so- Dude, they were like twice. Well, so, if it was, so if it was child pornography, it would have been a better movie for you. No, I meant I meant Beverly once she'd grown up in the second episode. Oh, okay. in the second oh, okay. episode. Just, Just to, to clarify. clarify. Just John Ritter hammering away. I don't know. I have no With idea. With a glow what in the I'm dark saying. condom. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. <laughs> well, you just advocated for child pornography. No. So Well, he did clear no, that up that's though. Not, he did that's not something that I did. I was only half listening. Um I just heard a woman's name and thought a, a joke about gangbang would be appropriate. Um <laughs> uh, again, poop culture and dueling decades. It's not a joke. <laughs> Uh, I'm so getting that email later. John, we've liked having you on the show. <laughs> it's been a fun run. Uh, all right. Well, uh, let's let's look at this very quickly then. 1987 Survivor event. Uh, yet again, wrestling comes up uh, on Dueling Decades. It really is a reoccurring theme. Uh, I think it, it, we can have one more instance where wrestling comes up, and then we <laughs> then we write a rule that that can't be a thing anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna so, be the first to break that rule. <laughs> I think it's it's come up probably more than twice. Oh, it's come, twice it's come up us. like a hundred times since I've been doing the show. Um, yeah, but I yeah. think what it, I think what it's building to, Bo, is that you and I just wrestle. That's really what I'm getting down to. Is if that, you want to fight a man with make, a broken back, you, yeah, you go right ahead. You, you make yourself look like the bigger man, John Cross. You, you keep your mustache. I'll put on a skirt like Rowdy Roddy Piper, and we'll just go at it. Um, and by at it, I mean what I was talking about with the end of it. Um, <laughs> Uh, Bo's way too old for you, man. Yeah, Come yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm up there. True. I like them more like CGI spider age, whatever that is. Um, or no, uh, what was it? Um, stop motion. Anyway, uh, the other one was the Max Headroom mask, which I'd actually come across before, despite it uh, not being, a, a, like I say, a, a necessarily a worldwide story. It definitely had worldwide reach because 
I was sort of aware of it. And it's, uh, yeah, chilling and bizarre. And my feeling is there should just be a lot more of it. I just think that there should just be a lot more weirdos being able to intercept television. And the fact that there isn't is, is really uh, upsetting to me. And then in 1990, we have the classic series of SNL. Uh, all those new cast members joining uh, and Stephen King's It uh, airing. Um, I am going to actually go ahead and give this this time round to November 1990. Wow. Um, and I'll tell you why. Wow. Because if we're talking cultural significance, uh, not only uh, is SNL most of those cast members and uh, uh, everything more or less to do with it still incredibly culturally relevant. But uh, Stephen King's It, for people who grew up in the 80s and early 90s, uh, even though when you look at it now, that you know people might have issues with it, and that certainly the, the new movie a lot of people preferred. Uh, I didn't, but a lot of people did um, because of the effects and things. There is just something, there was something in the zeitgeist about that Stephen King's It miniseries. There isn't anyone I know of our age group that didn't know Tim Curry's face as Pennywise and and how that yeah. made them feel um, you know and how I thought it was scarier uh, way the scarier one. than the new one new was, the new one yeah, was all like look so. at me I'm a scary clown blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like look at all no, my teeth stop it Tim Curry <laughs> Tim Curry without makeup is scarier than the current movie <laughs> Tim Curry with makeup is even more frightening uh, Tim Curry now or no Tim Curry then let's that, not speak uh, ill of Curry. the wonderful Tim yeah, Curry poor Tim Curry uh, who uh, I won't hear uh, a bad word said about uh, the the mound of jello that he's become but the uh, <laughs> uh, it was so culturally relevant to my generation um, and uh, still is today as is SNL I'm a big fan so there we go November 1990, you win it. Although, November 1987, you guys put up one hell of a fight. It's a miracle. It's a Thanksgiving miracle. All right. So let's go Thanks. to the final <laughs> round of movies. Bo, over to your team. You guys get to start this one off because mm. you get control of the board. All right, James, I'm going to go to you, man. Yeah, yeah, you got a stronger play. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with Dances with Wolves. Came out on November 9th of 1990. The budget was $22 million. It grossed $424.2 million. It was nominated for 12 Academy Awards. It won seven with Best Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Original Score, Film Editing, Cinematography, and Sound. It was directed and starred by Kevin Costner. If you don't know the story of Dances with Wolves, it's a guy who fails miserably at suicide. Uh, outcasts themselves to uh, an Indian tribe, finds the only white girl in there, and runs away with her. And gets a horse and dog shot at the same time. That's essentially my biography. Oh. Spoilers! Jeez, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> Definitely not going to see that. <laughs> Can't kill the dogs in the movies. Kill people and don't kill the dog. <laughs> but no, it, it was hugely successful on multiple levels. It's been preserved in the U.S. National Film Registry. Uh, huge acclaims for that movie. All right. It's like I said to Mark earlier, we were talking about this. Uh, he threw something out at me and he was like, blah, 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 won a Grammy. And I'm like, yeah, so did Millie Vanilli. <laughs> like, <laughs> just because he won an award doesn't really mean anything. But anyhow, we're we're down to the wire here, so I'm throwing it all out. Go ahead, Bo. 
Uh, I had a tough time choosing one of these because one of my personal favorites was in the mix, and that was Misery with Kathy Bates and James Caan, which is easily one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, other ones you had in November of 1990, Rocky Five and Three Men and a Little Lady, uh, which is Selleck's best work as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but the one I'm going to go with, released November 16th, 1990, uh, starring Macaulay Culkin, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, John Hurd, Catherine O'Hara, talking about the cultural phenomenon known as Home Alone. $18 million budget earned $476.7 million at the box office. After its box office run, it was the third highest grossing film of all time behind only Star Wars and E.T. Uh, it's a holiday classic, and it's getting ready to, they're they're going to, Pull it out of the old uh, time machine and start running it pretty heavily here any minute now. No, I thought you said they're going to remake it again. No, well, I give it time. <laughs> but, but Macaulay Culkin's going to reprise his role. <laughs> no, he's going to be the, uh, he's the wet bandits. Yeah. <laughs> he needs the money. Same character. But this is what happened. This is the he was traumatized as a child. And as an adult, it led to a life of crime. Yeah, this is. His parents left him yeah, twice. This is him now with heroin. <laughs> That's what it's going to be. Oh, they should make that. I'd watch oh, that yeah. shit. Macaulay Culkin should just do it on his own. Yeah, no, really. Macaulay yeah, Culkin should part. just do it and play either play every part or enact all the other parts with sock puppets that he's made from his own filthy heroin-ridden sock. <laughs> yeah. I would, I'd, I'd pay money to go see that. Yeah. It's just Ooh. him in a basement going uh, stir fucking crazy, like <laughs> carving shit in the walls and screaming into the abyss. <laughs> you really thought of, you put a lot of time into this. <laughs> All right, so I guess that's over to us, Man Crash with movies. Want me to start this one off? Good. Well, Bo, I, I loved your pick with Home Alone. That's a great movie, and the house in that movie is actually the exact same house that Mark lives in. It is not. I wish it was, but <laughs> the Home Alone house was the same house used in the movie that I pick. Uh, the character Neil Page owned that in this movie. And, of course, I'm talking about the movie that was released November 25th, 1987. It is also a holiday classic. Also by writer-director John Hughes. This is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, starring Steve Martin and John Candy, Michael McKean, Kevin Bacon have cameos in it, and also, whoa, Joey Lawrence, a very young <laughs> Joey Lawrence in it. Uh, planes, Trains, and Automobiles, people don't always go to that first when they think of John Hughes's films, but for my dollar, it's one of the movies I grew up on. Seriously, one of my all-time favorite funny movies. When you look at John Candy's performance in that movie, he does it all. He's hilarious. He makes you hate him. You can't stand his character. And by the end of the movie, you have sympathy for him. So he takes you on a full journey on that movie with lots of laughs packed in. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, November 25th, 1987. I like me. My wife likes me. <laughs> of course. They gave, they gave you the swift kick in the nuts at the end of that oh, movie. Oh, they do. When you, when you realize that his wife is dead. Yeah, and that wasn't supposed it's... to be the original <laughs> ending. Thank God John Hughes changed it. The original ending was... Fucking Dell follows him all the way home. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that just would have ruined it. Thank God John Hughes changed the ending. But uh, And the cool little tidbit about that, the cameo by Kevin Bacon in that movie, 
they actually say that that's the same character from She's Having a Baby. And there's actually a scene no where you can hear a conversation with of Kevin Bacon's character having it on a payphone that's in She's Having a Baby. So it's in the same... Uh, and he's I thought you were going to say, and there's even the scene. a scene where you can hear someone having a baby <laughs> right. on the street. Well, little known fact, it's actually the same universe as Friday the 13th with Kevin Bacon. And uh, the sex scene ties together... She's having yeah, a baby, but, but she's, she's dead. dead. Anyhow. And crazy Ralph just uh, wants to tell us all that we're all doomed. <laughs> doomed. You're all going to die. All right. So the movie that I have was based on a 1982 sci-fi novel that was written by Richard Bachman. Anybody know who uh, are you familiar with Richard Bachman's work? Yeah, I love taking care of business. He, is he was in uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive? Is that what he was in? <laughs> Actually, no. Uh, Richard Bachman is the pseudonym for Stephen King. He actually released four books uh, under the Richard Bachman name. This is one of them. Uh, so, yes, this is a Stephen King book that was made into a movie, uh, much like uh, Bo was saying, with Misery. And that movie starred the biggest name at the time, possibly the biggest body at the time in, the, in Hollywood. And that was Jesse Schwarzenegger. The movie I'm talking about is The Running Man. Uh, which also starred my favorite game show host of all time, uh, Richard Dawson. Uh, the movie is supposed to take place in 2017, which I love. I love when old movies are set in a time period that I lived in. And obviously, uh, they got the whole dystopian thing wrong. But in an age where like fake news and going viral did at, they, are Rick? at their paramount Did they right get now. it wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say where we're going. I said where we are. They uh, were out by a year. The, That's really all that was. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they did get some stuff right, though, because like if you if you watch that movie, you know, like all the stuff where Ben Richards like kills all the people in the crowd. It's all fake. Uh, he kills the people at the airport. It's all fake. But they put the stuff together and they show it on the news and everyone thinks he's a criminal and they put him in this game show. And, you know, it, it really is kind of close to, you know, how modern society is today with all of our social media and everything. It's just fucking crazy. You don't know what to take. You don't have news days where somebody just bought a fucking camera and had it shipped to him. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> so you just have all these crazy fucking weird stories. Um But, yeah, that's that's the movie I went with. And like Bo said, and it was funny that he mentioned uh Three Men and a Little Lady, uh, Three Men and a Baby actually came out in uh, November of 1987 as well. That was so going to be my thing. <laughs> well, that's why I figured I got to throw it out. Both both took some liberties, so I'm going to take some liberties as well. And uh, that that did come out then. But that's where we are. Yeah. No, my thing was going to be you guys all missed the trick of being able to have Three Men and a Little Baby and Three Men and a Little Lady <laughs> as the same. It's hard because Mark and I kind of went back and forth. I was going to pick that one, but it's one of those movies. They made a lot of money, but a lot of people didn't like it. And a lot of people were detractors and saying that like Selleck should just stick to TV. Right. Also, and, you know, and you, you and wouldn't have won because three men, a little lady, clearly Selleck's best work. So <laughs> clearly that would have won <laughs> over three men and a baby. Clearly. Also, yeah. they go to England and they're, opinion of how people live in england is fucking hilarious if you've ever seen that movie it is absolutely phenomenal what they think of english people 
um, and just their myopic and ignorant view of the rest of the world. Um, <laughs> but uh, what a wonderful set of films. I cannot really fault a single film uh, really in this pack. It's just a, uh, a just a delight proving again that the uh, the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s were really where it's at. Um, you know, normally this is where I would say, but wait a minute, you missed these classics and then list a bunch of stuff that you haven't heard of. Apart from really Death Stalker 2 from 1987. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, Cadence starring Charlie Sheen from 1990. Most Love of that movie. Yeah, it's a fantastic. It's just a bit, it's just a very, it's the sound movie. of the men kickback. Working on the tree. Love that movie. Maybe Meridian uh, from November 10th in 1990. Um, There aren't many. Like 1990 and uh, 1987 in November, some kick-ass movies uh, came out in that time, including the German Chainsaw Massacre uh, from November 29th uh, in 1990, uh, starring people with letters that don't exist in any other alphabet. Uh, and and way too many consonants in their names, um, but I would check that one out. The German Chainsaw Massacre, because um, who doesn't love watching Germans kill each other? Uh, but um, it's very difficult to pick between the two. Uh, Home Alone, especially. My goodness, what a cultural again. Bringing up another thing where I just don't get it. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Clearly, uh, a funnier movie, a better movie, a better written movie, a more uh, um, movie that should have survived uh, yet Home Alone still I think probably the better known of the two films um, and Dances with Wolves again not of all the kind of Kevin Costa starring vehicles this was sort of what the one before Waterworld it was just sort of the one before it turned before he started doing like Waterworld and the Postman and shit like that the Postman um, Tin Cup Love the Postman. No, the Postman. Oh, you love the Postman? Really? Yeah, it's Postman's a great movie. The Postman's a great movie for the 30 seconds that Tom Petty's in it. That's about it. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but no, this was just sort of on the cusp of him becoming insufferable. Kevin Costner became insufferable, went away, became old and grizzled, and then came back again and is much more palatable now. Um, JFK is my 90s Costner movie, though, if I have to go for any of them. I go JFK every time with Costner. I actually have it over here on the shelf. It's back and to the left. Yeah, oh, nice, nice. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Home Alone should. All- John, Sorry, dude. Yes. Go ahead. Do you need? Do you need to go to the top ten? Is it? Is it that? No, because I've already disqualified. I've already okay. found out a way to disqualify. Because normally Home Alone would like just for its mere money making and sequels and and cultural and everything. Would would make 1990 the clear winner. However, however, um, having already had to succumb to Trump once tonight and give him a win, Home Alone two does feature <laughs> Donald Trump and therefore wipes the Home Alone franchise. That's how you sink it. Wait, 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 wait! Tim Curry is in Home Alone two. Let's yeah, not know, forget about I know, that. I know, but I already gave and him Rob it. Schneider. Oh, no, you just sunk it again. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's only one Rob Schneider movie worth watching, and it's the one he did with Jean-Claude Van Damme, where they're in Hong Kong, and for some reason they're fashion designers. I don't understand it either, but that's really the only Rob Schneider movie you need to see. That's 1997 for yes. you. Yes, uh, and cocaine again. Thank oh. you. Yeah, oh, yeah. It came back. 
what's the name of that movie? What's the name of that movie? I just put out a trailer for that. Maybe like last. Oh, what month. is it? Um, knock off. Knock off. Yeah. Yep. Because again, they play fashion designers. Uh, why? Who came up with that? Who went? Ah, oh, Jean Claude Van Damme, Rob Schneider, Hong Kong fashion designers. <laughs> yeah, it's like they put just words into a mixer and just that'll do next. Yeah. But yes, uh, that's the only way I can sink Home Alone in order to let 1987 win. Uh, you know, I, oh, it's so difficult. Man Crush, tell me, can I go with personal preference <laughs> over box office takings and longevity? <laughs> Uh, you know what? Like, I kind of gave up with box office numbers because over the long run, it doesn't really matter, you know. Because there's there's movies that make a shit ton of money, like Three Men and a Baby, that nobody watches. Yeah, anymore, nobody gives but a it shit. made three hundred million dollars. Yeah. yeah, so like you really can't go by that anymore. Um, so that's why I don't even throw out the numbers anymore. Good. So I'm gonna go with 1987 then. Because uh, clearly oh. uh, the the better films, but let me explain. Let me explain. I gave it one tonight. That the whole night I've been wrestling with this whole popular versus my opinion thing, and I gave it earlier to something that was ruthlessly popular without being worth anything whatsoever. So now, as we end on movies, which is my own personal love, I'm going to go with two great movies in 1987, as opposed to two. Good movies that ended up doing really way too much at the box office than you would expect. Uh, and uh, I'm going to go with 1987. Sorry, guys. Bo, I wanted to root for you, but... Uh, oh, it's again. fine. I'm just... Uh, you know, <laughs> I guess I'm used to it now. <laughs> I think you have to look at it like that, though, because if you just look at numbers... And we did this early on, so we're at fault for doing this as well. We'd throw out the numbers and we'd say, oh, this is what it is in 2018. You really can't do that because right. there's movies that make a shit ton of money. Like Dances with Wolves probably made like half a billion dollars or some shit in the box office in 1990. But I would never watch it again. I'd watch it one time just to see what all the hubbub was about and never rewatch it. You look at a movie like what I picked, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Cost $30 million to make. Okay. The gross, $49 million. It barely made any money. It's one of the all-time great comedies. So yeah, I think you're right on that. Box office doesn't always give you the best representation of the product. And you factor in rentals and right. all that afterwards, which nobody really does. But those movies were, you know, they were staples of the rental community. People went back and also not even just rentals, but they were played on HBO and Cinemax and Showtime over and over and over and over. Yeah, and nobody's watching a three-hour epic, you know? Yeah, I mean, like what Bo said yeah. with Home Alone. In about a week, it's going to be on TV every single day for the next two months. Yeah, yeah. ad nauseum. That's a monster. Yeah. That's, that's a huge. fucking monster movie. But I will, give you, I will give you one example, uh, and, and this is probably the best example because they actually went head-to-head -head in the box office. One massively won and one massively failed, and yet I think... 40 years later or 36 years later, uh, we consider one to definitely be better than the other. And that is John Carpenter's The Thing and Steven Spielberg's E.T. Steven Spielberg's E.T., obviously massive at the box office, huge, big 80s success. John Carpenter's The Thing stank, got horrible numbers, horrible reviews. Everyone hated it. I think that 28, 30 years later, whatever it's been, 38 years later, um... John Carpenter's The Thing, way more culturally significant than E.T., 
way more culture in terms of movie making, in terms of fanboying, in terms of cult movies being a thing now. Oh, yeah. It's 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 way 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 more important. Um, you know, look at the animatronic puppet in ET versus the special effects work in the thing. Um, you know. E.T. looks... Well, he never had good luck. I mean, look at Big Trouble in Little China. did really shitty in the box office. I know. That's true. Uh, look at, look, and look where look that at is my now. favorite Tom Hanks film of all time, The Burbs. Uh, oh, I thought you say Philadelphia. Absolutely tanked <laughs> so you're gonna when say it babe. came out. And now it's, you know, hugely popular. So uh, I'm going to go with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and The Running Man because I, they're just movies I'm going to put in again. They're just movies I'm going to watch again. All right. Well, there you have it. The Judgment has been delivered by Judge John Cross. The 80s, take it yet once again, 1987. want to say thank you to all of our players this week. And uh, James, thanks for coming on and guesting on the show. Tell people where they can find your podcast. Uh, you can find us at That Totally Awesome 90s Podcast on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we're on Spotify. We're, of course, on Apple iTunes and all that stuff. So anywhere you find That Totally Awesome 90s Podcast, you'll find us. All right, and Judge John Cross, where can people get more of the Judge John Cross if they want some? Uh, you can find Judge John Cross uh, wherever After Movie and Diner uh, are found. Look up AfterMovieDiner.com, search After Movie Diner on any social media networks. And if you're thirsty, why don't you wrap your lips around a cool, cold, sweet, sweet boiling? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sponsored a sweet by boiling. boy? Boy, yeah. this just went weird again. A sweet, sweet, sweet <laughs> young boy. No, uh, <laughs> a, a, a bottle of boiling cane cola. And of course, the rest of us here can be found at Poop Culture. And if you want to catch up on all the past episodes, you can find them at poopculture.com. We're also in the works with duelingdecades.com. And you can stop over to our Facebook page and catch up on all the action and episodes there. So until next time, fellow poopers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a great week, everybody. Yay! Infirmary Media.